Let's turn in our Bibles together to Exodus 31. Exodus chapter 31. Follow along as I read the entire chapter. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. At first glance, this may seem like a strange way to end this long section that we've been going through on instructions for the tabernacle. It seems, even for a sometimes tedious portion of Scripture, or at least it seems to us, uh, it's kind of anticlimactic. Why not really structure things with a bang so that you end and the final instructions are, and here's how you build the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat and have glory come down, maybe a few pyrotechnics like we had on Mount Sinai, but instead you end with Bezalel and Ohaliab. And then what looks to be a sort of repeated Sabbath section tacked on at the end. Haven't we already had instructions on the Sabbath a couple of times in Exodus? And so just sort of smack another Sabbath story on there. But as we have found with so much in this section on the tabernacle, upon closer inspection, what seems to be haphazard or even pointless, if we're honest with ourselves, is actually 
the perfect setting. And what we find here by the inspiration of the Spirit is the perfect conclusion to this set of tabernacle instructions. Think about it. Beginning in chapter 5 through chapter 30, we have had six chapters of what and why. What are you building? What does it look like? What materials? And along with it, the, the why. What does this symbolize in Israel? Why ought they to be sanctified? Why are they set apart? Six chapters of what and why. And now at the conclusion, we have one chapter of who and when. So the who, Bezalel, Ohaliab, and the other craftsmen that they will oversee, and then the when, not on the Sabbath. Let's look at both of those. First then, the who in verses 1 through 11. You see at verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, see, that is, look at this. Look, look here, Moses, do I have your attention? This is the one I want. I want this man by name. I'm calling him out, Bezalel. Later, he will give to him an assistant foreman for the construction project, Ohaliab. These two are going to oversee the production of the tabernacle and all of its furniture and all of its utensils. So manna came from heaven. The quail came from heaven. The blueprint came from heaven. But the work to build it will come from their own hands. This was in distinction to many of the pagan temples in the ancient Near East, where it was said that those temples were made by the gods themselves. But of course, you remember, Paul makes... Uh, an, an important point of this in Acts, that God does not ultimately dwell in temples made by hands. No, the blueprint is from God, peering into the heavenly architecture, but the actual construction of it will come from men. Now notice, we have this phrase in verse 3, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim. The Spirit of God. This is only the third time up to this point in the Bible that we have this phrase, Ruach Elohim. The first is in Genesis 1-2 where it says, the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Remember this morning about spirit and water? Well, that imagery starts at the very beginning in the second verse of the Bible. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And can you think, if we had a smaller class, I'd ask to see if there's any bright student who knows the second example of Ruach Elohim. It comes in Genesis 41, 38, where Joseph, who is interpreting dreams, is described as one in whom there is Ruach Elohim the Spirit of God, or they may have understood it to be the Spirit of the gods or the divine Spirit, this same phrase. So this is the third time in Scripture only that we have this phrase, the Spirit of God. Further, it's the very first time anywhere in Scripture that someone is said to be filled with the Spirit. And just note this, because this is remarkable. The first person in the Bible said to be filled with the Spirit is not a prophet, not a priest, not a king, not one of the patriarchs, not Moses or Aaron or Abraham, the very first person to be filled with the Spirit, or at least told is filled with the Spirit, is a handyman, is a construction foreman. 
If you know me at all, if you don't know this about me, you would after a very short time on any sort of construction project. I am terrible at all of these things. It was a very rude awakening, my very first church in Northwest Iowa. So a lot of good farm boys who grew up, they just seemed to all know how to do stuff. I thought, how did I miss this growing up in the suburbs? I don't know how to do anything. And they would all come and, you know, they'd, all, they'd get up on the roof and they'd re-shingle the roof. How do you know how to do that? I'm over there just trying not to fall and die a premature death. That's not how I want to go out. Uh, later they said, Pastor, we want to come. Let, let us redo your, your basement. Well, I feel sort of sheepish about it. You're just coming over and doing this work. So, of course, I want to help. So I'm off there in the corner, sort of. Anyone need um, hammers? I know what a hammer looks like. Screwdrivers, there's a couple different kinds. There's some real, real like skinny flat ones, and then there's some like pointy ones that have a name. Any one of those? I got two screwdriver out. That's all I could do. After a while, when I actually tried to do something, they just said, Kevin, maybe you could just prayer support would be fine. <laughs> I'm an embarrassment as a husband. My wife knows how to do more things. She hangs the stuff on the wall. She's the one who's eager to try things. I just am so poor at it. When, when I was in our church's uh, Christian version of Boy Scouts, it wasn't Boy Scouts or Trail Life, it was called the Calvinist Cadet Corps. <laughs> it's very true. And I may have mentioned before that the, the counterpart in the girls was not uh, Heritage Girls, it was the Calvinettes. Beautiful, beautiful thing. The cadets and the Calvinettes, just saying, could be an interesting name change. No. So we would do all these things, and I didn't know how to do anything. And so all of the people in my section, they would say, Kevin, can you do the Bible lessons for us so we can go build a go-kart? And it was a good arrangement for all of us. I really zipped through all of the spiritual merit badges and the things that required you to do knots and lashing and knife safety and other things. It was terrible at it. Now, why do I say all of that other than to just get that off my chest? Thank you. Because you need to hear this from your pastor who has no self-interest in saying this whatsoever. I'm a, I'm a word guy. I make a living speaking words and writing words and teaching words. And you may think as a person in the church, well, those are the gifts that really count. And I'm not a, a thinky person or I'm not a word person. Well, you need to hear me, and more than that, you need to hear me speaking this word from Scripture, that to be able to do things with your hands, to build, to create, to be artistic, whether as a man or a woman or as a child, to design things, to implement things, to construct things, is a gift from God. We see it here. The very first person in Scripture said to be filled with the Spirit is a construction foreman. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? When you hear that language, we are apt to import a lot of foreign ideas. Here's one definition. To be filled with the Spirit is to have an ability from God to do or say what God wants said or done. To be filled with the Spirit is to have an ability from God to do or say 
what God wants said or done. Often in Scripture, this refers to the speaking of words, but here we see it refers to the construction of actual physical artifacts to be filled with the Spirit. Let me give you some examples to flesh out that definition. Micah 3.8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So the connection there, filled with the Spirit to declare something. Luke 1, 15, 16, and 17. John the Baptist, it is said, will be filled with the Spirit, and he will turn the hearts of the people to God. He will be a prophet. Luke 1.41, Elizabeth is said to be filled with the Spirit. And then, in the next breath, it says she exclaimed and proclaimed the glories of God. Acts 4.31, believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then can you think of a negative example? Interestingly, in Acts 5.3, remember when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. So instead of speaking the truth of God, they speak a lie. And do you remember what it says about them? They lied to the Holy Spirit after being filled with Satan. Jesus makes the same point. We're coming up to it in in John chapter 8, that to speak out lies is to speak the native tongue of Satan, the father of lies. In other words, Acts tells us to be filled with the Spirit is to speak out God's truth after him. To speak the lie is to be filled with Satan. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, be filled with the Spirit, and then what? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms, giving thanks, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, to be filled with the Spirit does not refer to a worship style. It does not refer to an ecstatic experience or some emotional high, though we're happy for emotions. Rather, to be filled with the Spirit means you are aided by the Spirit to do what God wants you to do. That often involves speaking the Word, but it can involve other gifts, like building things, as it does here with Bezalel and Ohaliab. Look back again, then, at Exodus 31. Here, the filling of the Spirit, verse 3, entails four gifts— Ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. The word ability here could actually be translated wisdom. It's not wisdom in terms of smarts, but rather the wisdom to be able to do things. And then intelligence, that is to be discerning and perceptive. Knowledge, so he has an understanding to accomplish the task. And then a craftsmanship, skill for the matter at hand. Only the best materials were to be used for the construction of the tabernacle. The fine linen, the colorful garments, the the elaborate breast piece with the fine jewels. Only the best materials, and here we see only the best craftsmen to utilize it. Look also at verse 6. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab. And then it says, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So this is going to be a task, though first he names Bezalel, and then he names Ohaliab. The understanding is they're not the only two people making this from start to finish, but they're going to oversee a team of people who are given these skills. Unless the women feel like they are left out, turn over to Exodus chapter 35. 
We read in Exodus 35, verse 25, and every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. So Bezalel and Ohaliab are mentioned, and then these other able men, and here we see that the task fell also to these skillful women who were using their gifts and abilities in the service of the tabernacle. Think about what a privilege this was. Only the Levites could attend to the service of the tabernacle. So no, no women were going to attend to this service. The priests were men. No other tribe, only Levites. But here we see the two men in charge of the project. One is a man from Judah, and the other is a man from Dan. They would make these implements and these items and this tent, and then they would never touch them again. Some of them, there were men who were making the Ark of the Covenant, and they would never for the rest of their lives or their children's lives ever see it again because they were not of the priestly class. And yet these men, and together some women, were given this special task to create these things. You recall that the priests were covered with the anointing of the ceremonial oil as a kind of depiction of God's christening and God's spirit upon them. But here, what a privilege that Bezalel is said not just to have an anointing oil, he's not a priest, but rather he has the real thing. He has the spirit filling him for this task. Now we should not think that these were new abilities infused on the spot. He wasn't calling Kevin DeYoung and then making him have new abilities that he never had before. No doubt, these two men were already skilled. Isn't this how God typically uses our gifts? He refines your gifts further and further and then repurposes them to his own ends. So people who naturally in life as non-Christians might have been good leaders, God takes those and refines them and shapes them and makes them into leaders. Those who may have had skill and intellect to write or to speak in any sort of profession, he then takes those and hones them and repurposes them. And so here, those who were already good at making things and crafting things, he takes those gifts and he says, you're gonna use this to serve me. Just like the Spirit came upon David in 1 Samuel 16 to play the liar for Saul. It wasn't that David had never had liar lessons before, the instrument, had never played before, but now God is using that. So this is a reminder to us. These gifts, by and large in Scripture, don't just, just fall from the sky and suddenly now you're good at something. But all of the years honing your craft all of the time that musicians have practiced their scales, up, 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 down, 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 practiced their scales, all the times that Bezalel and Ohaliah, maybe on their, their father's knee, learned to use a mallet, learned how to use a chisel, learned how to use the saw, now God is using it for his purposes. These gifts. See, I think we have a very truncated view of spiritual gifts. And I know there's some purpose, perhaps, in taking some of those spiritual gifts inventory and you answer the questions and it helps you see yourself better. There's, there's a, a point to that. But I don't think the Bible means to give us an exhaustive list of gifts. 
you get one set of lists in, in Corinthians and another set in Romans and another set in Ephesians, perhaps. I don't think God meant to say, okay, add them all up. Here are the 19 spiritual gifts that exist in the world. Rather, they're, they're an ad hoc list. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that music is mentioned as a spiritual gift, but I think it certainly is. Here we see that craftsmanship can be deployed by God as a spiritual gift. So there's a broad range of abilities. And what you need to understand, some of you who have perhaps gone through your whole life as a Christian feeling like, well, I'm not one of these teacher guys. And you know what? I like to... I like to do stuff, and I like to get my hands dirty, and it seems like I have some ability in that. God wants you to use those gifts to build up his body. All of us as Christians have abilities, gifts from God for the building up of the body that we should not squander. Let me just underline each of those phrases. You have gifts from God. They're from God. Here we see that artistic design is a gift from God. Let's be honest, the church uh, in recent years does not have a real good track record of encouraging artists in using their gifts. Sometimes that's because artists insist on every gift that they have doesn't have value unless it can show up in a worship service or show up on the walls of the church. But in general strokes, we ought to be encouraging Artists, musicians, craftsmen, that their abilities can be used and deployed for God's service. God, too, has given those gifts to his body. But they're not given to us just for our own sakes, but if they're true spiritual gifts, they're for the building up of the body. So if one danger is that sometimes as Christians we kind of say, well, artists, craftsmen, You know, get back to me when you know some Greek and Hebrew and you have real gifts. That's a big mistake. On the other hand, sometimes there are this sort of artist mentality that makes it sound like artists are a spiritual breed all unto themselves. And therefore, they can autonomously pursue their own desires because you can't ever quench the artist's creativity and imagination. Well, Scripture speaks against both of those errors. To the one, it says, no, I've given to Bezalel and Ohaliah, these artisans, gifts. I've filled them with the Spirit. But yet it is for a purpose, not just for self-expression, but for the glory of God. You have abilities from God for the building up of the body, so don't squander them. That doesn't mean that you need to serve on umpteen committees at church, though we're thankful for people who do. What it means is you need to think, what are the things that I can do well, and how might God refine them, shape them, and redeploy them for his purposes? Because there is no gift too small in our eyes that God doesn't have a plan to use it. Some people are an eye, a nose, an ear, a mouth, somebody's a spleen, Somebody's a a pinky toe, and you need all of them to be functioning. And so let's be a church that celebrates the diversity of gifts in our body, just as we see God giving his spirit to fill Bezalel and Ohaliab in craftsmanship to construct the tabernacle. That's the who, and now more quickly, think about the when. 
So why does verse 13 say, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. That's a pretty bold statement. We've had all these instructions in the the covenant, and we've had since chapter 25 instructions on the tabernacle, and now he says, above all, okay, underline it, boldface it, italicize it, don't miss it. Why? Well, it gives us the reason, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I, the Lord, set you apart. I, the Lord, have made you different. And that means you rest on the Sabbath. Now, it's a very practical set of instructions because what are they probably thinking after they have this exciting blueprint? We're going to build a house for the Lord. And Bezalel must be beaming with pride and Ohaliab and, oh, come here, buddy. And they're getting all their groups together and parceling out their subcontractors and they're ready to go. We're going to build the house of God. And God says, It's good, just remember, you're not working on the Sabbath. Don't do it. Do things my way. You see, the Sabbath was fundamentally a sign that they trusted God, that they depended upon God, that they did not rest in men or in their own wisdom, but they rested in the Lord. It's impossible to overestimate the importance of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. This is the most frequently cited of the Ten Commandments. You could turn back to Exodus chapter 16 when they're moving through the the wilderness to Mount Sinai. We've already had one story about Sabbath instruction. And then, of course, in chapter 20, we have the fourth commandment with the Sabbath. And then surely it's instructive that chapter 31 ends with Sabbath instructions. That is, we've now had the detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle, and it ends with the Sabbath. And then turn over to chapter 35, and you notice the very first heading there, Sabbath regulations. Why? Because chapter 32, 33, and 34 is this interlude with the golden calf. Chapter 35, they actually start building the tabernacle. So it's very deliberate. The last thing I want to tell you, when I give you the instructions, keep my Sabbath. The very first thing I need to tell you as you start the construction, remember my Sabbath. It's one of only two violations in the Mosaic law that call for both death and for being cut off. Do you see that in verse 14? Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Those are not identical punishments. You may think, well, you're already dead. What does cutting off mean? Well, death is death, and then cutting off is a a further removal. You don't have a proper burial in the covenant community. You're you're dead, and you're, you're, you're banished. You are so cut off. The only other infraction to receive this double penalty is sacrificing one's children to Molech. It tells you something of the significance of this Sabbath command in the Old Testament. Matthew Henry says, the observance of the Sabbath is indeed the hem and hedge of the whole law. And we see finally in verse 18, the importance of these commandments as the tablets of testimony. 
And here surely we're speaking of not the entire set of instruction, but the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments are written down on stone by the finger of God. In chapter 24, we were introduced to the writing of the tablets, but here we're given further information that it was by the very finger of God. Now, people have often pointed out, perhaps tongue-in-cheek, that when Moses smashes these the second time around, God says, now you write them. But this first time, he writes them with the very finger of God, underlining for us the significance of the moral law, of the tablets of the testimony, of the Ten Commandments, those tablets which would be placed in the Ark of the Covenant along with Aaron's staff that budded and alongside the manna as those three holy artifacts of Israel's history. Now, though we see pictures of the two tablets and usually think of it as the two tablets of the law and there's the tablet that refers to our relationship with God, commandments one through four, and then the second table of the law, we call it commandments five through 10 that deal with our horizontal relationships. That's surely not what they were doing here. But as was common in the ancient Near East, you made two copies of your covenant stipulations, one for you and one for for your king or your lord or or your god. So these are not commandments one through four and five through ten, though it's fine for us to speak in that theological language, but two copies, one for God and one for the people. What lessons then should we draw in closing? Let me suggest briefly three. Number one, and this is the most obvious, we need to rest. And not only that, we need to work very, very hard to rest. And I'm saying this to you as one who has not always been a wonderful example of resting as I ought. You see this striking language in verse 17? And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, you could tie yourself up in theological knots there. How does the God of the universe in eternal Trinitarian bliss get refreshed? Well, there's something then of human language to describe the mystery of God, but that word is significant. God himself found refreshment in this rest. Remember the point, the point of a Sabbath wasn't so much about do this, don't do that. That's what it maybe became. Why was the Sabbath commandment highlighted more than any other of the Ten Commandments? Because it was about trust. The point of the Sabbath is not, did you break a sweat? But rather, did you break a trust? I think God is much more interested in that. I don't know how how many steps did you take? Did you sweat? What did you do? But are you living the sort of life that rests adequately to say, you know what, God? This world doesn't depend on me. And ultimately, even I want to be a good mom or dad, my family ultimately does not depend upon me. This house does not ultimately depend on me. This church does not. My business, Lord, people who never stop to rest, it's more than just a bad habit. The issue there is trust. Do you trust God enough that he is in control and that he can manage? I've said before that one of the things we ought to think when we wake up in the morning, you know, you hear that alarm clock and most of us, it's a very sweet sound, right? We love it, that alarm clock. No, I want you to imagine God just, just tussling you up, saying, hey, hey, good morning. Just want you to know 
I managed okay without you. I'm still here. The world's still here. It's okay for you to sleep. So resting is not so much about all of the laws of what we can and can't do as it is a matter of trusting in God that he is more than able to take care of us and the things that matter. Here's the second lesson. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We read this in Hebrews 4. So the Sabbath command is still operative in the New Testament, but it is transposed to another key. Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest had also rested from his works as God did from his. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. So we rest from our works, from our evil works. That's how some interpreters take it. It may also be simply from any works, any sort of striving for acceptance with God. And do you see the connection? If we don't learn to really rest in Christ, and we think that we need to prove ourselves to God, and we need to earn something with God, we need to merit something with God, and we can't allow ourselves to be loved by God, do you see how we're in even greater danger? Not just of being physically put to death and physically cut off, but that same double punishment spiritually, spiritually dead, spiritually cut off from God and his people. The lesson of the Sabbath is to put all of our trust, all of our dependence upon God. And so as difficult as it may be to rest one day in seven, it's even more difficult and even more important to rest from our works and rest in God. God, you're the one who gives me my value. You're the one who gives me my purpose. It's not how my kids are doing. It's not how many wrinkles I have or don't have. It's it's not the number of pounds that show up when I step on the scale. It's not the number of degrees or the amount of money that I make, God. It's you, and I rest in you. I rest from my evil works. I rest from all the works that I'm striving to make it in the world, and I trust only in Christ. And then a final lesson, and we see this in both halves of chapter 31. As God's people, we ought always to do things God's way. That's the point. I've given you the instructions. It's the exact blueprint. And now I've given the spirit to Bezalel and Ohaliah because I want them to do it just as I have said. You see verse 11? According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do it. God has his reasons for his good for his glory. And surely it's no coincidence that the very next section is that great tragedy in Israel's history. Here they are at this literal high point with the word coming down from Mount Sinai to Moses. And I'm going to dwell with you. And I've made a way for, for me to live with you. And I've given you sacrifices. And I've given you a home. And I've given the spirit to fill these men that they can make it. Do it according to all I've commanded you. Do it the way I told you. And in the very next chapter, by the turn of the page, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, and you know what comes next, they made a golden calf. They did not do things the way God commanded It happens to all of us, sometimes daily, weekly, monthly, sometimes hour by hour, that temptation. Does God really know best? Is it really going to be best if I do things his way? Is there really a good reason why he tells 
marriage to be like this while he tells my relationship? Can I really trust him? That was at the very heart of the Israelites' problem. It looked good when Moses heard it, but as soon as there was a delay, as soon as there was just a little, a little breath of doubt blowing through their camp, they thought, I don't think we can trust God to do it his way. And we'll see in the weeks and months ahead how that goes for God's people as they do things their way instead of God's way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, all of it breathed out, profitable for us. And so we pray that you might deploy us this week to work hard for you, to use the gifts you have given us, and that you would also give us the hard work of resting and trusting in you. Not vacating, not laziness, but the very hard, disciplined work of trusting that you are enough, that you are in control, and that you call the shots. We thank you that you are God and we are not. In Jesus we pray, amen.